I'd like you to open your Bibles with me this morning. We're going to be in the Gospel of Matthew this morning. As we are going to start this three-week sermon series where we're looking at the Easter celebration and, and we're coming into our Easter celebration, but a sermon series that I've titled Nails for Me. We're going to be looking at the life of Christ in, in his last days on earth before his crucifixion and what a lot of people thought were going to be his last days on earth. But we're going to look at three major instances in the, in the Passion Week or the, the week leading up to his crucifixion. We're going to see the plot to kill Jesus. We're going to see and hear the prayers that Jesus prays and then we're going to go in a we're going to go to the cross on Easter Sunday and we're going to go to the empty grave on Easter Sunday and we're going to celebrate that our Lord is risen. Amen. If there's something that I desperately want to make sure that you take away and you take home with you in this series is the theme that on a Friday 2,000 years ago, there were Roman soldiers who had long nails and a hammer, and those nails were for me, and those nails were for you, right? It's because, of our, it's because of our sin that we've earned the wages of death. But no believer will ever have to fear those nails because Jesus took those nails for us. Any man could have gone to the cross. As a matter of fact, many men did. It was pretty common for the Romans to crucify people. Isaiah, can you bring me down just a little bit more, please? Thank you. It was pretty common for the Romans to crucify people, so many men went to the cross, but if Jesus was simply a man, it wouldn't have really meant anything at all, right? But Jesus was man, and Jesus was God, and Jesus is the perfect sacrifice, the unblemished lamb that is sacrificed for our sins, because what we earned was death, right? What we earned was separation from God. The Easter story itself, it did not start at the cross and it did not end at the grave. The Easter story began before time was even created. It started when God's plan came together before time and when God says I'm going to bring my children into a relationship with me and they're going to need a savior and they're going to need atonement for their sins that's where the Easter story started in heaven but the Easter story that started on earth started with jealousy and it started with hate and it started with bitterness and it started with envy and corruption and power and the willingness to do whatever it takes to stay in dominance of other people. The Easter story on earth started out from a very evil, evil plot. We're going to be in Matthew 26 this morning, but in Matthew 25, Jesus is speaking to his disciples on the Mount of Olives, and he's told them parables, and he's been teaching them. He knows his time on earth is limited, and he really goes into some deep teachings. And we're going to witness this morning the beginning of the end. The beginning of the crucifixion. The beginning of the time when 
the church leaders thought that they had snuffed out Christ. At least many people thought that they were doing away with a revolutionary. We're going to be in Matthew 26 this morning. We're going to start in verses 1 through 5 in a message that I have titled, The Plan to Kill Jesus. It doesn't really sound like a wonderful title to a sermon series or to a sermon, but it's really important to see exactly where this got started in our earthly context. We're in Matthew 26, we're in verse number one. The author writes this, when Jesus had finished saying all of these things, he said to his disciples, as you know, Passover begins in two days and the son of man will be handed over to be crucified. At the same time, the leading priests and elders were meeting at the residence of Caiaphas, the high priest, plotting how to capture Jesus secretly and kill him. But not during the Passover celebration, they agreed, or the people may riot. So the day is Tuesday. The Passover starts on Thursday. It's actually a week-long celebration in Jerusalem, but the actual Passover starts on Tuesday. And this is two days, or it starts on Thursday. This is two days before on Tuesday. We're going to jump right into this. Point number one in your notes. We see from the elders and the church leaders that the death of Jesus on the cross was a planned event. The death of Jesus on the cross was a planned event. On earth, men put a vast amount of time and a vast amount of efforts into conspiring and creating backdoor deals to get Jesus on the cross. However, the death of Jesus was planned in heaven a long time before creation. The death of our Savior was no accident. It was heavenly planned and it was earthly intentional. It wasn't something that came across accidentally. Matthew tells us that this group of leaders that had come together to plot a way to kill Jesus is a group called the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin is a group of religious leaders in Jerusalem. There would have been many of them from the, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and, and you, would have had, you would have had others who were way high up in the religious system in Jerusalem that were part of this group. They were the Jewish leaders of the land, the heads of the church. They knew that the teachings of Jesus were going to undermine their power and, and create havoc if people really started following Jesus. This was going to be a problem. These Jewish leaders, they, they were high religious leaders in Jerusalem, in, in the area that the Jews lived, but they weren't government officials. So the government of the land was managed and ruled by the Romans. The Romans, of course, ruled out of Rome, but they had soldiers and they had and they had people who would rule the Jews in this land over the Jews in Jerusalem, in Judea, in Galilee. And the Romans, they just wanted people to, to have peace they, and they just wanted to collect the tax. They really didn't want any sort of uprising. They didn't want any sort of revolt. And they knew if they just let the Jews have the religion, do their religious stuff, for the most part, they were going to kind of be peaceful. 
But if Jesus is going to be a revolutionary, then that means that people might rise up. And the Jewish leaders don't want to be squashed by the Roman authorities. So they just want to eliminate the threat. They want to eliminate the threat to keep the peace. So here are the leaders of the Jewish elite in, in the church, and they're meeting to find out how they can eliminate Jesus. They wouldn't have met at the temple. That would have been too, too obvious a place. If the Sanhedrin would have come together, people would have saw it, and the rumors would have been going around. No, they would, they would have had a meeting somewhere secret and started talking about how are we going to get rid of Jesus but we need to keep a lid on this because we don't need this word getting out. We just need to take him out quietly because if we cause, a, if people see this, they're going to riot because Jesus has some followers at this point. There's some people that, that want to follow Jesus. There's many people who would have seen Jesus feeding the 5,000. And some of those 5,000 people would have come to believe in him and are now following him around and are listening to his teaching. And a little while later, Jesus fed 4,000. And there's people who are listening to his teachings as well. There's people who saw his miracles and are following him and, and look at him as a prophet. There's some people who probably know their, what we would consider our Old Testament and can see that Jesus is actually the Messiah. But the religious leaders don't want anything to do with Jesus. They really simply want to eliminate their threat. So they know, the religious leaders know, that Jesus is probably going to be in Jerusalem for Passover. He comes every year. Passover is a celebration in Jerusalem where if you're 19 years old or older and a male and you live within about a 20-mile radius, it's required that you come to Passover. The city of Jerusalem would have about 2 million people in town for the Passover. That's a lot of people. It's a lot of people for the temple guards to just kind of walk around and look for Jesus. And it's a lot of people to try and kill somebody and not let anyone else know about it. You can't just kill somebody in the middle of a big crowd and keep it quiet, right? So the, the guards and the church elders and the people who are plotting to kill Jesus, they're starting to make this plan. They're starting to come up with a plot and with a way. Some of them haven't seen Jesus in a year. Some of the temple guards... They don't know what he looks like. It's not as if you could take a picture of Jesus on your cell phone and just text it to everyone else and say you're looking for this guy, right? So wouldn't it be nice to have somebody who could help? Somebody who may know a little bit more about Jesus and where to find him? That would really help out if somebody could point him out to the guards. About 500 years before this point in time, there's a prophet by the name of Zechariah. And Zechariah writes this, and he's prophesying about this exact moment. I want to read, you to the, uh, I want to read this to you. It's from Zechariah 11, verses 12 and 13. Zechariah writes this, And I said to them, 
if you like, give me my wages, whatever I am worth, but only if you want to. So they counted out for my wages 30 pieces of silver, and the Lord said to me, throw it to the potter, this magnificent sum at which they valued me. So I took the 30 coins and threw them to the potter in the temple of the Lord. What happened next in our story as the, as the leaders and the elders of the church in Jerusalem as they are plotting, what happened next was prophesied about 500 years before this exact moment. See, the details of the crucifixion of Jesus were planned in heaven, and now we're seeing them being planned on earth. What the priests and the elders and the, and the high priests needed, they needed a man on the inside, somebody who could who would give up their friend for cash, somebody who could point him out when he comes to Jerusalem. Cash is not an issue to the church. The church is the wealthiest institution in the land. Two million people are coming to Passover and they're going to be paying their temple tax. There's a lot of money in the temple, full of gold. Money is not an option. Name your price. We just need somebody to help us out. For a moment, we're going to step away from the book of Matthew and go into the book of Luke, because Luke really shows us exactly what happens next. We're in Luke chapter 22, verse number 3. It says, Then Satan entered into Judas Iscariot, who was one of the twelve disciples. And when he went to the leading priests and the captains of the temple guard to discuss the best way to betray Jesus to them, they were delighted, and they promised to give him money. Now Matthew says, 30 pieces of silver. So he agreed, and he began looking for an opportunity to betray Jesus so they could arrest him when the crowds weren't around. Point number two in your notes this morning. Judas was part of the heavenly and the earthly plan to lead Jesus to the cross. Judas was part of the heavenly and the earthly plan to lead Jesus to the cross. Interesting thing about Judas is Judas was a very, very trusted member of the inner circle of Jesus and the 12 men who followed him around, the, the 12 disciples. As the 12 disciples and Jesus would move from city to city through their three and a half years of ministry, as you can imagine, moving 13 people around is going to take some money, right? And you might have some, some, some people that gave money to Jesus and the group to help buy food when they went to a new city, maybe to buy clothing, maybe to buy new shoes, maybe to pay for lodging. Well, this money has to go somewhere, and Judas was the one who took care of the money. Judas is the treasurer of the disciples. He's one that is put in charge of making sure that the money's where it's supposed to be. He pays for the lodging ahead of time. He's the money guy. And when Jesus tells the disciples that one of them is going to betray him, the 11 men wouldn't have thought, the others wouldn't have thought that it would have been Judas. Maybe Peter. Peter was crazy. We saw a lot of things from Peter that would have made you think, you know what, maybe, maybe Peter. Maybe Matthew. Matthew used to work for the Roman government. He was a tax collector. He, he, he's, he's a Jew, but he collected money from the Jews and gave it to the Romans. Maybe Matthew. Not Judas. 
Judas is the man in charge of the money. He is a trusted member of this group. But the leaders and the temple guards, they got exactly what they wanted. They needed to add to their plot. They needed that, that, that extra, just that extra element that would help them get to Jesus. And now they've got it. They've got an insider now. Somebody who could give them a sign and say, hey, this is Jesus right here. Out of these two million people, this is the guy that you're looking for. Yeah, I know. I follow him around all the time. This is him. This is the right guy. This is big. It's a big break for the elders of the church. And it's what, the, it's what they need to eliminate Jesus from, from this area and eliminate this threat. But there's something about the damage that can be done by insiders it's actually more damage can be done by insiders than people on the outside governments have been brought down by people on the inside it was less than a decade ago when a gentleman by the name of edward snowden was part of a contracting group who had access to very sensitive government information in the united states and and he started to go on the government computers and download a massive amount of content. And then he would take it and put it out in the media. And there was so much information that he leaked out into the media that, that he had to flee and now lives in exile in Russia. His notoriety didn't come from the fact that he was really good at his job. He is known as, an, as a traitor, somebody on the inside who turned on the United States. <clears throat> Bradley Manning was also a member of the armed forces. and He also had a job in computers and did almost the same thing. He downloaded a lot of information, over 750,000 individual reports from the Afghanistan and the Iraq war that he released. And it puts the country at risk. See, it's an insider can do more damage sometimes than even somebody on the outside because you have this intimate trust. If you think about these two guys, Bradley Manning and Edward Snowden, somebody at some point trusted them and put them in a position to have access to this information. Same with Judas. Judas was handpicked by Jesus to be one of the 12. He was trusted and he was an insider. This, this plot was so important and now it was so detrimental to Jesus because the leaders have somebody on the inside, somebody who knows where Jesus goes when he comes to Jerusalem for the Passover, knows where Jesus stays, knows who Jesus' friends are, knows who he hangs out with, what part of the city that he typically goes to, somebody who knows all of this stuff. And the Bible tells us that Judas went to the Jewish authorities. This is kind of one of the saddest parts of the story, is that the authorities didn't come to Judas. Judas went to them. He willingly went to the opposition. He willingly went to people who wanted to kill Jesus and turned him in. And he asked them, how much money will you give me if I turn him over to you? We're told that they are so excited that they now have somebody on the inside. And they negotiated this price. 
It wouldn't have just been like, hey, we'll give you 30 pieces of silver. No, the, 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 the text actually tells us that, that there was a negotiation and that Judas would have, he would have been okay with 30 pieces of silver. They shook hands on it, they gave him a bag of money, and he went on his way. 30 pieces of silver in this day and age, in Judas's day, that would have been the equivalent to about four months' worth of wages. About four months. It's not like they gave Judas the equivalent to millions of dollars so that he would never have to work another day in his life and that his entire family would be taken care of for their life and generations of Judas's family would be set. No, they gave him 30 pieces of silver. In our world, that would have been about enough to pay our rent and our car payment from now until August. That's it. 30 pieces of silver is what he sold Jesus for. That's it. Judas had a price. When we look at it, his price wasn't very high. And Judas was a money man. Kind of makes it hard to understand why he only took 30 pieces of silver. But he had a price. A lot of people here have a price. Some people might say, well, I don't have a price. If somebody were to ask the hypothetical question, and maybe you've been asked this before. Maybe the kids ask this. Hey, how much would I have to pay you to eat a bowl of dog food? Right? Have you ever... Well, I don't, I don't know anyone that would say, you know what, I'm going to eat that whole bowl for free. You know, or just not going to do it. But somebody might say, well, I'll give you $1,000. No. But once they get up there at about $10,000, $15,000, you're thinking, okay, well, that's a boat, and it's a bull, and uh, I can get a boat out of it. Right? So everyone has their price somewhere. When I was a kid, I remember in fifth grade, there was a, there was a kid named Jeremy at our school, and Jeremy would eat about anything for a dollar. And there were kids who would come to school with dollars to give to Jeremy to watch him eat weird stuff on the bus. Jeremy would eat worms. He would eat the gum off of your shoe. He would eat dirt. It didn't matter. You give him a dollar, he's going to eat it. That kid made about $9 a day. (laughs) Jeremy made pretty good money for being a fifth grader. But see, Jeremy had a price. If you've ever been in the situation where we've been asked or, or, or we kind of wonder or, or people wonder if our loyalty to Jesus is for sale, many of us would say, no, it's, it's, not, for, it's not for sale. But I want you to remember that time when you first came to Christ, when you first had to take your faith into the workplace and we realized that, you know, I've got to back off on my faith at work because everyone else is going to kind of make fun of me, right? Or maybe I've got to kind of tone down the Jesus stuff around the other soccer moms because it's not really popular, right? Or maybe, maybe on Fridays and Saturdays when I'm out at the bar with the guides, you know, nobody, nobody likes to be drinking and preaching at the same time, so I just kind of tone it down, right? So it's a price. That's something that, that we're paying. We're, we might not be gaining financially, but we are gaining by loosening our standards on our faith. What we're gaining is acceptance from the world. What we're gaining is, is people being okay with us, and we're gaining the fact that, you know, they're, they're not knocking us right now. We're kind of fitting in. 
As Christians in our day, sometimes it's easy to compromise and not to talk about our faith that much just so that we could fit in better. And you think, well, is that 30 pieces of silver? Is that turning over Christ? Am I betraying Christ? Well, we're kind of turning our back on our faith when we have to compromise like that, right? The sermon series is called Nails for Me. And it's specifically talking about that, that saying that Jesus took the nails for me. Those are our nails. Those are payments for our sins. They are the earnings of our betrayal of Jesus. See, Jesus was there long before creation. He knows the plan, and he knows that he's going to be betrayed. And he knows it's not just from Judas. He knows that there's family. He knows that sometimes we're going to have a hard time not turning our back. Turn with me back to Matthew. We're in chapter 26. We're in verse number 20. And I want you to notice something really important here. Matthew 26, verse number 20, reads like this. When it was evening, Jesus sat down at the table with the twelve. While they were eating, he said, I tell you the truth, one of you will betray me. Greatly distressed, each one asked in turn, Am I the one, Lord? He replied, One of you who has just eaten from this bowl with me will betray me. For the Son of Man must die, as the Scriptures declared long ago. But how terrible it will be for the one who betrays him. For it would be far better if that man had never been born. Judas, the one who would betray him, also asked, Rabbi, am I the one? And Jesus told him, You have said it. I should write this down. Point number three in your notes this morning. Jesus wants us to know that he knows our sin. It's at this time when him and Judas are at the table that Jesus knows Jesus wants us to know that he knows our sin. See, the other disciples at the table, they didn't know. Throughout the rest of the narrative of this story, we see that they're as shocked as anyone, probably more so that it's Judas because they trust Judas. But Jesus knows that he's going to be betrayed, and Judas knows that he's going to betray Jesus, and now Jesus knows that it's going to be Judas I know this gets confusing, but Jesus, Judas knows that Jesus knows. Wow. That kind of puts you in a tough situation. I want you to think about any, of, any action movie that you've ever seen in, in your life when the villain makes a plan to go after and kill off the hero in the movie. And the last thing that the villain wants is for the hero of the movie to find out his plan. Right? to find out exactly what's going on that kind of ruins the plan. At this moment, when Judas, Judas realizes that Jesus knows his plan, he realizes that Jesus has already got him figured out. He knows that he's going to betray Jesus. He knows that Jesus knows that. And this is something so important that I want you to see. 
As we're in our overall series called It's All About Jesus, we're, we're looking at how Jesus reacts. I want you to see how he reacts to this. It's very important because he doesn't summon 10,000 angels to come and just take out Judas. He doesn't start making a big scene in the upper room and just belittling Judas. He doesn't go on and start knocking him on Facebook. He doesn't, he doesn't just get in a fight with Judas right then. What he does, as soon as he's finding out that Judas is going to betray him. The Bible says that Jesus breaks bread. He was just exposed, Judas was, and Jesus then, at that moment, creates a worldwide symbol of peace. Jesus didn't get up and defend himself. What he did, he started teaching that his body would be broken for you and for me and that the blood that was shed for you and me was so much more important. See, Jesus knows that he could get out of this mess. He knows that angels could come and, and, and just, just take out this entire situation. But if that happened, you and I wouldn't have a Savior. We wouldn't have a sacrifice. That's what Christ did for us. He knows how painful this is going to be. Crucifixion is not something that is just in the back of everyone's mind. No, it's seen. Outside of Jerusalem, you could walk down the dirt roads. The Romans would put people on crosses all the time. And you would see men up on crosses yelling, screaming, crying. It was torment. Jesus knew exactly what was coming. He could have walked away. He could have summoned angels to get him out of the situation, but he didn't. Even after Judas was caught red-handed about to betray Jesus, Jesus still loved him. See, Jesus still, still gave his blood for Judas. And just like Jesus, just like he did for Judas. Jesus shed his blood for, for you and me. I'll be honest with you. In this whole scheme of sin around this plot to kill Jesus, Judas didn't do anything to Jesus that is any more detrimental than what you and I have done. It's the same sin. Matthew 26, verse number 26 reads like this. As they were eating... Jesus took some bread and he blessed it. And then he broke it in pieces and he gave it to the disciples saying, take this and eat it for this is my body. And he took a cup of wine and he gave thanks to God for it. And he gave it to them and said, each of you drink from it for this is my blood, which confirms the covenant between God and his people. It is poured out as a sacrifice to forgive the sins of many. Mark my words, I will not drink wine until the day I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. Then they sang a hymn, and they went out to the Mount of Olives. He's just been betrayed. He knows that Judas has already been paid, that this betrayal, it's already set in motion. There's no turning back. And he turns around and he breaks bread and creates a symbol of peace. What do we do when we know that somebody in our family 
who's betraying us. Or maybe if somebody in our family is kind of talking bad about us or somebody that we know is just being hurtful to us or somebody that that we love and we trust is turning their back on us. Do we fight or do we break bread? Jesus broke bread. That's hard to do, right? Wow, that's a very hard example to follow. He's God. We're not. I get it. But wow, to see what Jesus did when somebody betrayed him. He broke bread. And he created a symbol of peace. Point number four in your notes this morning. Even though our sin sent Jesus to the painful torture of the cross, he still loves us deeply. He still loves us deeply. Even though that Jesus said, for the one who betrays me, it's better that you hadn't even been born, Jesus still died for Judas. His blood was still there. There's nothing that you can do that is more that is deeper in sin than the grace of God. There is nothing that we could give him that is more significant than his grace, that his grace can't cover. He still loves us deeply. The book of Romans reads like this in, verse, in chapter 5, verse number 8. It says, but God showed his great love for us by sending Christ to die for us while we were still sinners. We're sinners and he died for us. Paul continues in chapter 10 in verse number 9. He says, if you openly declare that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For it is by believing in your heart that you are made right with God. And it is by openly declaring your faith that you are saved. As the scriptures tell us, anyone who trusts in him will never be disgraced. Jew and Gentile are the same in this respect. They have the same Lord who gives generously to all who came on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. See, we wouldn't have that opportunity if Christ didn't go to the cross. We wouldn't have that opportunity if Judas didn't betray him. Knowing that he was being betrayed, our Lord still went. He still went to the cross to take the nails for me. I wasn't alive then. Jesus didn't know me. Like personally, then walking on, on earth, he knew that you and I would be here someday. He died for people who didn't even exist for another 2,000 years. And everyone in between, and everyone in the next 2,000 years. It wasn't just the people on earth that day. He died for people who he's never going to shake hands with this side of heaven. But knowing that you and I need a Savior and we need atonement for our sins, He went to the cross. And He went to the cross for you and He went to the cross for me. And He took these nails so that we could spend eternity with Him. And it's the only way that we could spend eternity with Him. If you're here today and you're wondering what all this is about and, and, and why Christ would go 
to the cross for you. If you're here today and you're not sure if you're going to spend eternity with Him, if, if you have put your trust in Him or if you have called out His name to be your Lord and Savior, if you're not 100% sure that you're going to spend eternity walking the streets of gold with Jesus, I want you to come and see me. I want you to come up in a moment and I want to pray with you because I don't want anyone walking out of here today that we're not going to be able to spend eternity with together in heaven. Amen? I'm going to ask Jerry. Jerry's in the back. There's Jerry. Right around the corner are the elements. Jesus brought the what we now look at as the Lord's Supper to the men in the upper room. And they celebrated this symbol of peace. I feel it's a proper time for us to do the same. It's been a while since we've held communion and we will continue to do so. We'll put it on our calendar on a, on a monthly basis. But Jesus made clear to the disciples that, that this, is, this is a symbol of my sacrifice. And there are implications in the objects that are remembrances for believers, that we remember in the bread that this is his body. And remember in this juice that this is his blood. See, none of us got to know Jesus personally. We know Jesus in our hearts. But he left us this symbol. And he says, do this in remembrance of me. When we come to take the Lord's Supper, it's also a time that, that we look to examine our hearts. It's a time that, that, that we need to come to Christ clean. That we need to, to look in and say, what sin is here, Lord, and I need to give this to you. And it's time if there's somebody who we haven't forgiven that we need to forgive, that, that we give that to the Lord as well. It is... It's a time of remembrance, but it's a time that we come to Christ. Just like we can't go into heaven with our sin, we're taking the body and the blood of Christ. And we don't want to put these in sinful hearts. It's time, and I would ask you as we pray here in a moment, that, that, we, give these, that we give these issues in our hearts, that we give these that we give these sins, we give them back to Christ. And, and as we examine our heart, we expect that we know that He will. And it's time for forgiveness to those in our lives who we've, we've held things against. Finally, when we take the Lord's Supper, we take the Lord's Supper together. As a church, we come together in remembrance of Christ, we come together as a family. I'm going to ask if, uh, if Jerry and, and Nathan, maybe you can help him out, would you mind? There's, the elements will be passed around. While they're doing that, Thank you. While they're passing this around,
from this point forward in the story leading up to Easter, Jesus is, he is walking towards the cross in every event. Next week we're going to look at three prayers that Jesus prays. These three prayers come out of John chapter 17, and it would be what I would consider to call the Lord's Prayer. This is a prayer, these are prayers that Jesus actually prayed for His disciples, for Himself, and for future believers. This is for you and me. As He prepares for the cross. See, the cross and the crucifixion of Jesus was planned. It was planned in heaven. It was planned on earth. And it was planned in the heart of Christ. In 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse number 23, Paul writes this. And he says, For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the same night in which he was betrayed, took the bread... And when he had given thanks, he broke it and he said, Take, eat, this is my body which is broken for you, and do this in remembrance of me. Let me pray. Lord, we thank you for, we thank you for the time that, we thank you for going to the cross. And now, today, we do this in remembrance of you. That you went to the cross for us. That those nails were ours. And that your body was pierced for us. And we do this in remembrance of you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's take of his body. In the same manner, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. I'm going to pray over this cup. Lord, we we thank you for your blood that was spilled on Calvary that day. And we're so in awe of you. As, As physical death came, but it could not keep you in the grave, Lord. We pray and we thank you for your blood that atones for our sins, Lord. We praise you and we love you and we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. And let's take of his blood. Verse number 26 says, For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. There are people in your life at home. There are people that you know from work who will think about coming to church on Easter Sunday just because that's what they do. They go to church once a year. They, maybe they go twice a year. Maybe they're going to feel guilty on Easter if they don't go to church. We've got two weeks left in this sermon series, and I would ask that, that you invite them and say, hey, you know what? Instead of giving God one week this year, why don't you give Him two weeks this year? And come next week. And we're going to celebrate 
the season for two more weeks and look at our Easter story. We can be so blessed and so honored and so thankful that Jesus took these nails for us because the wages of our sin is death. That's what we earned. But Christ took that for us so that we can spend eternity with Him in heaven. And eternity with the believers that came before us in heaven. And eternity with believers that come after us. We can spend that time in heaven. Everyone in your life that you know now, I can almost assure that you want to spend eternity with them in heaven. And Christ wants to spend eternity with them too. We are His messengers on earth. It's our job to spread this word to them. Amen? Let's pray and Daniel's going to play.